Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Epilepsy is an electrical disorder of the brain causing debilitating seizures and affects around 2% of the population. It's a devastating disease that arises in many forms, with no cure for most. Associate Professor Chris Reed is a Principal Research Fellow, Member of Faculty and Head of the Neurophysiology of Excitable Networks Laboratory at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Chris Reed is currently developing a new treatment for epilepsy and his research project is part of BioCurate's research portfolio that spans across several therapeutic areas from oncology to central nervous system to musculoskeletal and fibrosis. BioCurate is an independently operated venture catalyst jointly formed by the University of Melbourne and Monash University. Dr Andy Horvath sat down for a Zoom chat with Associate Professor Chris Reed. Chris, how prevalent is epilepsy in Australia and actually around the world? Epilepsy is one of the more common neurological disorders. Uh, There's at least 150,000 people in Australia currently suffering from the disease. Worldwide, uh, that increases to about 50 million. Interestingly enough, it's actually perhaps more prevalent in developing countries where nutrition is poor uh, and clearly healthcare is poor as well. But it's very much a a, a very common uh, neurological disorder. Chris, when you mean common, can you give it to us in terms of per head population? Well, I, I said about 150,000 Australians do suffer from the disease, so that gives you a sort of rough estimate. But across a lifetime, about 3 to 4% of people will have a seizure. Uh, interestingly, a, the, the predominance of those seizures tend to occur either early in life uh, and then again back towards the end of, of later life as well. Yeah, about 4% of people will have a seizure at some point in their life. Currently, what is the treatment we use for human epilepsy? One of the big issues with epilepsy, uh, at least the proportion of patients, about a third of patients are refractory to the current treatments. Uh, Those treatments are are wide and varied. Um, They include drug therapy. They also include invasive things such as um, having surgical uh, removal of parts of the brain. There's also Diet versions, there's a well-recognised ketogenic diet, which is known to be quite effective in, uh, in certain types of epilepsies. Um, so th- there is a broad range of uh, methods to try and treat the disease, but generally speaking, uh, about a third are not responding uh, particularly well to any of those therapies. Chris, what attracted you to this area of research? You're interested in neurophysiology. Tell us more about your foray into this area. Uh, I, I actually did pharmacy as a, an undergraduate and then worked as a pharmacist for a period of time. Uh, during that time, I actually worked within the, the hospital setting uh, and in the neurological world ward in particular. Uh, and I saw you know, a series of patients that were just not treatable. Uh, that was a, a few years ago now. And thought, well, you know, I can't can only do so much as a pharmacist. I would like to actually do something at a more fundamental level. Um, and I sort of deviated a little bit and went into much more basic neuroscience. I went into um, mechanisms underlying learning and memory. I did a great postdoc in London. But when I came back to Australia, which is in about 2001, I really felt like I needed to get back to my clinical roots and for the reasons I went back into, into science in the first place. Um, and that's where I, I sort of came across a couple of people, uh, Steve Petru and Sam Berkovic, 
I was quite a young scientist at that point, uh, and they had a very big or strong focus on genetic epilepsies. And uh, that, that really sort of focused my attention into the epilepsies of which I've been working for now uh, in excess of 15 years. Wow. Chris, you were inspired by people you couldn't help as a pharmacist, and then you moved into scientific research. So did you enter the field of epilepsy research straight away? Not immediately. A lot of my early work was, was very, very basic science. I actually looked into a form of um, synaptic plasticity called long-term potentiation, uh, which is how the synapses become strengthened under certain learning paradigms. So my, my very early focus was, was very, very basic neuroscience, trying to understand the basic un building blocks effectively of, of, of what a brain is. My drawback into the more clinical relevant uh, aspect was, was really driven by that original need to go into science uh, when I came back to Australia in about 2001. Um, and as I said, that's when I met um, really quite important people in the field of epilepsy uh, that inspired me further. Okay, so you're interested in the way nerves synapse with each other and the connections and how they find a way of transmitting their messages. What led you towards a rat model of epilepsy? Clinical research is, is central to, to the way we do science. However, there's only so much you can do in a clinical setting. Much of what we need to understand in the brain needs to be done uh, with much more invasive techniques. Uh, the technique that I'm specifically um, an expert at is a thing called electrophysiology. We actually take bits of the brain from a mouse and or rat and put little pieces of glass on those neurons uh, within that slice, and we can record the electrical activity. Now, we know that um, epilepsy is an electrical disease. We, when we have a seizure, the brain goes into these hypersynchronous episodes, and that hypersynchronicity needs to be recorded in, in, in electrical terms. So that's the, the big reason for going into a mouse model, is that, that we have the ability to, to be more invasive and, and, and use much finer tools to, to understand the disease. The burning question is, are we any closer to finding new treatments for epilepsy? So there's two parts to that answer with regards to my research. Uh, the first relates to the genetics of epilepsy. I've been very fortunate to be part of the genetic revolution, which was started by Sam Berkovic and Ingrid Sheffer from the University of Melbourne. Uh, I joined uh, Steve Petru's lab at a time when uh, that was very new, and we generated mice models based on genetic mutations in humans. Those mutations, or those mice, uh, are particularly uh, impressive in the sense they recapitulate much of what you see in a human meaning that we have very good models to understand disease. So in, in that front, things have moved incredibly quickly over the last 25 years, which is when the first epilepsy gene was discovered, to a point now where gene therapy uh, is becoming a reality. So the gene therapy for a subset of, of epilepsies is, is starting to look very promising. And we are expecting, I think, within the next three to five years, therapeutic approaches around gene therapy that will be effective. The small downside to that is that the genetic architecture for the less common epilepsies is, is starting to be well understood. But for the more common epilepsies, um, it, it's less well understood. So we do need alternative approaches as well, which is really the program that I've been driving with BioCurate, uh, and that is to try and discover small molecules. And in that particular case, what we've done is actually identified a channel in the brain that's in a, in a hot spot that causes uh, seizure generalization. So that's when seizures 
cause the big tonic-clonic seizure um, that we mostly associate with epilepsy. And with Biocurate, we're actually doing a, a, a chemical or a small molecule program to design drugs to that target uh, with the view of, of treating um, you know, a larger population of, of epilepsy people. Uh, so it's a two-pronged approach, uh, and both of which have their risks, but both of which are moving forward uh, particularly well. Chris, it seems like that a lot of research starts to really emerge into the clinical setting with collaborations. Tell us more about how multidisciplinary approaches like Biocurate can actually help these things come to market. Yeah, so I mean, the collaboration occurs at, at, at numerous levels. The collaboration that we're doing really in the genetic world is, is the clinicians finding genes and us then taking those genes and incorporating them into mice models and understanding the mechanisms of those causes of the um, the disease through through that genetic mutation. And then because we can identify mechanisms, we can give indications of what would be a, a good therapy, um, either through gene therapy or repurposing old drugs, uh, for example. Uh, so that's a, a very clear circular collaboration in the sense that the clinicians give us information, we use it to then give them information to treat patients. The, the Biocurate is slightly different in the sense that we know as a scientific community that translation is central to, well, one, our survival, but to, to our, our worth. And Australia has historically not been very good at translating their ideas into, into products. Biocurate has been spectacular my research uh, for a number of reasons. So the, the first is money. I mean, research can't be done without money uh, and they are financing uh, a small molecule program. So very thankful for that. But it goes beyond that. Um, you know, as a basic scientist, we don't get taught the process of translation. It's not something that probably doesn't even interest most of us, to be fair. Uh, we're interested in our little puzzles and we're interested in getting those little puzzles into a paper and then getting a grant. Um, so Biocurate provided different uh, forum. They, they provide a structure, they provide a pathway, uh, they provide and also an, an academic uh, input as well because a lot of the chemistry has been driven by Biocurate chemists. Uh, so it's, a, it's an all-inclusive collaboration that really gives us a, the best possible chance of taking my very basic idea, which I found in, you know, in addition in mass models, through to a point of creating a drug and then Beyond that, you know, the, the, the translational path beyond that is uh, even more complicated. So regulatory, whether the drug is able to cross blood-brain barrier, all those types of things, the things that I don't have expertise in and that Biocurate are providing. I think that's really good news. When I first started science journalism, everyone was saying in R&D, the research and development, the D part was missing. And it's really great to see and hear about Australia picking up the reins of development. So you've predicted that we might have something in three to five years. That's pretty good news. Yeah, with all the caveats, I think as basic scientists, we've, we've got to be um, clear that um, what, we're, what we're talking about is risky. Um, there is always a long road and often a lot longer road than, than you ever anticipate from getting an idea in a laboratory through to something that might end up in the patient. I think the, the three to five years is, is more for the genetic therapies that have been developed. Those uh, are very targeted. We know exactly what mutations causing the disease. The gene therapies are very targeted to those genes. So that's a, a, a big plus. Um, but as said, they're not going to be treating the vast majority of epilepsy patients. The small molecule program will probably take longer realistically. That's um, We've got timeframes on that between seven and eight years for development of a drug. Although, you know, the hope is to perhaps bring that in a, a little earlier. 
you know, that said, it's moving, you know, we've been working with Biocurate now for, for less than a year and uh, already we're generating lead compounds uh, that have promise. So who knows? Uh, but the hope is certainly within three to five years for the genetics and, and maybe five to eight years for the, for the small molecule program that's been run through my, my laboratory. So, Chris, what would you like to see activated in society? One thing I wouldn't mind using this forum to, to get across uh, is that basic science is a, a central engine uh, to innovation. A lot of our funding bodies have been focused heavily on translation. I think that that's important and critical, and Biocurate is an example of that. But we've got to be careful that we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I wouldn't mind using this as an opportunity for advocacy of basic science, um, the need to sort of have people play and, and, and look and find things that weren't expected uh, is central to, to the development of new targets. Uh, it's central to our understanding of how the brain works. It's central to uh, the development of, of newer drugs uh, into the future. So I believe that uh, Australia should be very, very focused on the support of, of basic science. So Chris, what's your advice to future students? Science is a spectacularly exciting job. I think it must be one of the best jobs in the world uh, to wake up every morning, have uh, an idea and, and have the ability to translate that idea into something real is, I don't know, for me at least, uh, some of the, one of the most exciting things that you could possibly do. So students um, that have that need to know, um, have that want of freedom, I couldn't more highly recommend a scientific career. The, the one I guess, caveat to that, and it's something that we do need to bear in mind, is that it is a very competitive uh, field uh, because the job's so good, uh, which means that the career can be a little bit uh, finicky. You're not always guaranteed to have money. But that said, if you've got passion and you've got a desire to, to really change the world, you, know, you will make a, a career out of, of science. And it's certainly a career that I've had uh, and enjoyed uh, for over two decades now. It's been particularly exciting. The other aspect of it as well is that it's an international game. As a student, you're really focused on what you're doing within a quite narrow environment. But as you become a postdoc and you head overseas and you work for three or four years in either New York or London, uh, I was in London for three years, for example, you really do grow as a person. So highly recommended as a, as a career with the realisation that it's not an easy one. Chris, what would you like us to think about next time we encounter epilepsy in society or know a friend who has it? One thing I wouldn't mind getting across from an, an epilepsy perspective, and, and this is something that, that I've now got um, a personal connection with. A father uh, contacted me a few years ago um, about a little girl called Ebony, um, and Ebony had has a, a mutation in the gene that, um, that I'm particularly interested in, and that's the reason that we got together. We actually made the, the, the Ebony mouse. I'll call it the Ebony mouse because um, the mum and dad have seen the mouse, and they actually named it the Ebony mouse. And that mouse is telling us a lot about what's happening with Ebony and, and it's giving us an opportunity to potentially help her. But what really came to the fore with that interaction was just how tough it is that these people, not just the kids themselves, but the parents uh, are going through. Um, you know, Ebony will have clusters of seizures that occur, you know, 20 or 30 at a time or within a day. And sometimes she goes blue and sometimes she, she has aspiration, pneumonia and ends up in hospital uh, that aspect of it is, is hidden from much of society. And having that interaction, which is unusual for a scientist, that one-to-one -one interaction, has really highlighted just how tough it is for people not only having epilepsy, but people that are looking after, um, especially young children that have epilepsy as well. So that's what I would like people to think about, um, the difficulties that these people are facing. Associate Professor Chris Reed, thank you very much. All right, thank you very much. 
Thank you to Associate Professor Chris Reed, Principal Research Fellow, Member of Faculty and Head of the Neurophysiology of Excitable Networks Laboratory at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on August 6, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.